Exodus 14, 14. Uh, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Uh, my journey to Christ has not been smooth sailing, but God has been so patient and faithful with me through it all. Two years ago, God changed my heart, and I decided that I was no longer going to live myself, my life for myself, but live it for Him. Um, but I quickly realized, as I stumbled back into my old lifestyle, that this Christian life that I've chosen to live is not easy. Um, I've often wondered if I've messed up beyond the extent that God's forgiveness reaches. Yeah, I guess I've, I've encountered these valleys regularly, um, but, but in those valleys, I'm learning that God is just molding me and, and showing me that He's my ultimate strength in those valleys. And, and yeah, I can't keep on putting my, my trust in these worldly desires that always fail me because the truth is that God never fails me. I remember knowing in my heart who Jesus was and what he did for me. Um, but asking a girlfriend, how do you know if you're a Christian? I guess I just felt like I wasn't clean enough or didn't know enough biblical knowledge to say, okay, now, now I'm a Christian. The same thing came up when I was thinking about being baptized. A situation had just occurred that had caused me to stumble greatly. Um, and I was really confused. I was, I was thinking, if I say I'm a Christian, how can I sin like this and resort to my old ways? Um, yeah, I guess I felt like I had to have everything in line um, before I publicly declared who Jesus was in my life. But thankfully, God placed amazing people in my life who spoke into those lies I was believing and just, just sharing the truth that I don't need to have everything in line before I declare my heart. Um, this striving for uh, perfection um, started at an early age in my life. This drive to always have everything in line and to look a certain way, I guess, um, and in combination with the fact that I grew up at the dance studio the majority of um, my life, led to a 14-year battle with an eating disorder. Um, it's been really challenging for me to see God's hand in it. Um, I understand where God has played a role in other parts of my life, but this area has been really hard for me to sort of see where he's playing a role. Um, but two months after becoming a Christian, I took a job, um, and it was actually the first thing I'd ever prayed about. Uh, and I didn't know what this job was going to all I knew is that I was gonna is that I was gonna be an outpatient dietitian. Um, yeah, and quickly into the job, I realized that over half the clients um, that I was counseling were women struggling with eating disorders. So I can look back and see that God placed me in that that job because of this aspect of my story. Yeah, I guess He placed me there to be someone who could counsel these women with not only sympathy, but empathy as well. Uh, God has begun to teach me a lot about this battle I, I've had with eating. Um, he's really just showing my heart in it all. Repeatedly I've said, like, no God, I've got this. Um, I don't need you in this part of my life. I've been to counseling, so I know how to deal with it that way. I, I, teach others how to deal nutritionally with it so I can I can manage on that part so I don't need you in this part of my life um, but yeah I guess God is showing me in all this that this struggle with eating is just a branch of a deeper root that he's slowly been working on um, I'm not perfect and never will be but we have a God that loves us despite where we are on this journey, despite the 
valley I might be in yet again. Um, and despite our messy past or present failures or future shortcomings, um, God doesn't love a future version of me. Um, and he most definitely doesn't love a five pound later version of me. My girlfriend always reminds me of um, this process of sanctification being like scraping this jagged metal off of us. It's not easy and often painful, but God is with you through it all. Yeah, God will use those valleys and he'll use those trying situations for his good. Good morning, Westside. Great to have you here today. Great to be with you. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for your story. It's beautiful. I mean, summed up perfectly. I could essentially just pray us out of here and we could just leave, but we're going to go a little longer anyways. But thank you for sharing. Thank you to all of you who have shared uh, over this series. It's been such an encouragement. My name is Matt. I'm part of the team here at Westside. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis, very first book in your Bible, chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing on today in our series uh, looking at six Old Testament men, six Old Testament women, their stories in the old, their stories, uh, and essentially what we're seeing through this series is we just want, we want all of us to see how God takes their stories as individuals and how he takes our stories as individuals and, and strings them together in his cosmic story of redemption. So uh, it's been a great series so far. I've been really encouraged uh, through it and by it. Again, uh, like last week, looking at David, we're going to do a lot of flipping. Her story uh, covers a few chapters, so um, please be in your Bible, but I will have all the text as well on the screen for you. So before we get into Sarah's story, let me pray for us. Father, uh, it's with humility. God, it's, it's in light of your great grace we come to you this morning. God, after hearing... Uh, that story uh, from Jen and, and hearing of your work in her life, I'm just once again just so reminded of how desperately I need you, God. And I know that that's true for all of us here. God, even with the events of this past week in our nation's capital, uh, how we've been reminded of the brokenness, the brokenness of, of humanity and our, and our depravity and our need, our need of you, God. I want to lift to you specifically, God, those churches today um, in Ottawa, where they're opening your word, where they've opened your word, God, and, and where they're proclaiming your gospel. I pray that uh, your, your grace would just run like a river into the lives and hearts of those people there. And I also want to pray uh, for the people in the churches in our city, God, where your word is being opened and the gospel proclaimed. Would you save many today, God? Would you draw many, many women to you? And would you strengthen your church? Would you build up the bride and encourage us, God, by your love and encourage us with your grace? God, we, we just want to see you today. Show us more of who you are, God. We, we just were so desperate for this work, your work in our lives. And we lift this time to you, asking that you would uh, remove our distractions. God, whatever we've brought in here with us, that you would just... By your Holy Spirit, God, that you would just focus our eyes and our hearts in on your word, in on you. Help us, God, in Jesus' powerful name, I pray, amen. Now, Sarah, Sarah's story um, is probably not that familiar to most of us. Some of you, especially, you know, if you've grown up in church, you'll kind of have an idea of who Sarah is, uh, Abraham's wife, and who she is, but probably not most of us. Now, here's the thing. Sarah's story, I find it really interesting for a couple of reasons. The first reason I find Sarah's story so interesting is because she's actually not the main character of any text. Right? The, story, her, the story we find her in is actually not about her. The story is much more focused on, on the life of her husband, a man named Abraham, kind of the, the patriarch of the Christian faith, but we see her implicitly. So she's kind of like a mystery to us. She's a little bit of a hidden character. We only have a few uh, direct interactions with Sarah. But those direct interactions we do have with her are the second reason that I find her life so interesting. See, the, the moments that we get to see Sarah's life directly, what we see in her is just, is weakness. Over and over and over again. The most prominent 
form of her weakness is just doubt, long-lasting doubt. We basically never see Sarah in the book of Genesis. There might be one, and you could argue two times, that we see her in a neutral or positive light. The, the whole rest of the time, we see her really cast in a negative light. Her, her story revolves around a theme of a lack of faith, a general weakness of character, and long-lasting doubt. And for that reason, if you have one of our storybooks in front of you this morning, you'll see that the theme we've chosen uh, for today is doubt. Now, and I know that that word is a bit tricky for us. When I, when I say the word doubt, uh, that can mean different things to different people. So let me try to clarify uh, what, what we mean by doubt today. There, there are basically two kinds of doubt that can, that can uh, revolve around or be in the Christian faith. Two kinds. I would argue that one is good and, and one is bad. Okay, the first kind of doubt uh, that, that we see is an intellectual or philosophical doubt. They're on that end of the spectrum. These are, these are skeptics, right? These are people who doubt things like the historicity or the reliability or the inerrancy of Scripture. They're people who doubt things like, you know, the miracles that we believe happened or the creation account or how, how Jesus could have been uh, born of a virgin or God in human form or resurrected from the dead. Now, these are big doubts. And I would argue that these are good doubts. And just so we're clear also, if you hold, uh, if you hold doubts in re relating to some of the most major components of the Christian faith, uh, chances are uh, you may not be a Christian, which is okay. It's better to admit that than to pretend you're something you're not. Much, much better to admit that. But these are good kinds of doubt because they lead us to investigate the Christian faith or they should lead us to investigate the Christian faith. They should propel us on a journey to examine and challenge the faith that we believe. And that's our call. If you've grown up in a Christian home and just kind of taken your faith for granted and said you're a Christian because of the family you're born into, but you don't actually believe these things, you're only fooling yourself. So examining the Christian faith is a very good thing to do and way too few, peop way, way too few people actually do that work. See, we talk about this a lot in our foundations uh, class, but, but way too many Christians are afraid that if they examine the reliability of their faith, they're going to find holes. Now, can, I, can I just offer to you, um, can I just offer to you one idea? If your faith if your faith, if you're too fearful to examine your faith because you're afraid you might find holes in it, you should throw it away. That's not something you should believe. If it's true, you can examine it and it will hold up. It will hold up to your challenges. If it's not, you, you shouldn't hold it as true. But I would, I would argue again that those are good kinds of doubt. But that kind of doubt is not the kind that is in view today. That's a healthy skepticism as long as it leads to the pursuit of truth. But there's another kind of doubt. It's much more subtle. It's a little more tricky to discern than the first. It's a kind of doubt that creates a deep discord in us as people. It's a kind of doubt that scripture warns us against in places like James 1, 5 to 8, which says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, we're being told here that there's a kind of doubt that leads to inner turmoil and instability. There's a kind of doubt that leads to us being people who are like a wave in the sea driven and tossed by a storm. This kind of doubt shows up in people who claim to believe in God or claim to be Christians, but actually doubt who God says he is or what God claims he can do. It's a doubt in God himself. This sort of doubt just simply lacks integrity. It says, I believe in God, but only to a certain extent. This kind of doubt attempts to impose our own limits on God. And Sarah's doubt, as we'll see this morning, falls into the second category. Sarah doubted that God could actually accomplish what he said he could accomplish. 
And the reality is that this kind of doubt is, is really common among us today. This kind of doubt works itself out in our lives when we say, you, you know, when we, when we claim to believe the Bible or claim to be a Christian or, or, or hold Christian faith and yet live our lives according to the wisdom of the world instead. Why? Well, because we're too fearful to lay our lives on the line. We're, we're too fearful that God won't actually be true to his word, that he won't actually do what he said he's going to do. We don't always really functionally believe he's going to do what the Bible promises. We doubt. Now, this can look like a million different things in all of our lives. I recognize that, but one thing is for sure. This doubt leads to incongruent and disconnected lives as we impose our faulty belief systems on God. In fact, that kind of doubt is at the root of all of our sin. Since all sin stems from unbelief in the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. Doubt cripples Christians. And my prayer is and has been that any who are living with it today will see the solution to it a little more clearly this morning. But we're not going to find uh, the power through that doubt or the help that we're looking for as we look to Sarah. She's not going to be a really big help to us as people. No, we have to look at the main character of the story instead, a God himself. So that's what we're going to do. Specifically, I want us to see how God relates to his daughter in her doubt, in her sin. I want to see exactly how God walks with Sarah as she doubts him. And I want us to do that because I want us to know how God deals with our doubt, how God deals with our sin. I want us to be encouraged by the way God the Father deals with sin in the lives of his kids. So that's where we're going today. As we walk through Sarah's story, I'm going to show you three aspects of the way that God handles Sarah's and our doubt. And then we'll just respond. Really simple, really straightforward. Let's jump in to Sarah's story. So when we're first introduced to this woman named Sarah, she's not actually named Sarah. She's actually named Sarai. We first meet her in Genesis eleven twenty-nine to 30, which says this. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarah, Sarai, excuse me, was barren. She had no child. So the first thing that we learn about this woman named Sarai, besides the fact that she's Abram's wife, is that she's barren. Now, that often becomes the, the entire focus of Sarah's story right there. We often just run to that one point, and I get that. This would have been a major aspect of her life. Infertility would have consumed her thoughts, her emotions, and her well-being. In that day, children were not only a blessing, they were actually your lifeline. I mean, they were your future, your livelihood, your retirement plan, your legacy. Children were everything. To not have children, especially later in life, would have been seen as a, a direct curse from God. And, and on a really personal note, if I can get personal with you for just a minute, I, I, I just want to let you know I recognize that there are some here today wrestling with exactly that. We don't talk about it a lot here around Westside because the truth is we reproduce like rabbits here. There's babies everywhere. Uh, so we don't, we don't talk about infertility a lot. But I happen to know there are people here struggling for a long time, struggling for a short amount of time. Uh, my wife and I are in the same boat, struggling with that for several years. And so, and because I can feel that pit in my stomach, and because I can, you know, feel my heart beginning to race and all that kind of stuff happening, when I hear that word, I recognize there are some here today who won't get past it. You're just, you're going to stay, you're going to stay there on that word, and, and that's okay. But what I want you to know, even though I'm tempted because of my situation to preach a whole sermon on it, I want you to know there's something better. It's actually not about, this story is not about Sarah's barrenness. It points to something so much greater. And I want to show you that. I want to point us to that. So the whole family, including Abram and Sarah, settle in a place called Haran. And the next thing we see is God speaking to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This 
Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is one of the most famous and pivotal moments in all of Scripture. This promise made to Abraham was a massive deal. See, up to this point in the story of the Bible, all we've been promised is a savior who would come and crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. That's what we've seen. But no other details until now. Until now. Now we realize this is the moment that God made clear through whom the savior would come to the world. The Messiah would come through the line of a man named Abram. Now, Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, is a really big deal. He's kind of like the patriarch of the Christian faith. In fact, a number, the three major world religions, um, the, the Muslims and Jews and Christians, all claim Abram as kind of the patriarch of their faith system. He's a very famous man. He's a man that God chose despite his worship of, despite his worship of other gods, despite his cowardice, and despite his many other character flaws that we see him in his story. Abram is, a, is the man God chooses to bring the Messiah into the world, which is what makes Sarai's barrenness stick out so much more. See, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is often, is often seen as a promise made to Abram for the sake of the world, and it is that. But I don't want us to miss today the woman standing in the background. This woman, probably feeling extremely self-conscious, and a little bit ashamed at this point in the story. See, this promise to Abram would have been a very significant moment for Sarai as God has just put his finger on the thing that caused her the most pain in life. This would have been a very confusing time for for Sarai as she wondered with whom Abraham was going to have this child. What I want us to see here today, West Side, is that whether Sarai accepted it at that moment or not, from that moment on, her identity changed. She went from simply being the barren wife of Abram to being the recipient of a promise. Which, which by the way, by the way, that's all, that's all that it means to be a Christian. That's what Christians are. Christians are nothing more than recipients of a promise just like Sarah. A Christian is someone, <coughs> excuse me, who has received the promise of new life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A Christian is someone who takes hold of the promise of God through faith in Jesus alone. Listen, Christians are promised peace with God, reconciliation, and ultimate redemption. Christians are promised that the righteousness of God himself will be imputed to them and they will live and reign with him for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, the idea of God being bound to Christians through promise is so prominent in scripture that the Bible actually speaks of God giving his Holy Spirit to Christians as a down payment, as a down payment of that promise being fulfilled. The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells with us as believers is meant to be a guarantee of what's still yet to come. At the core of their identities, Christians are recipients of a promise. So Genesis 12 is really good news for Sarai. God just promised her that she will bear a son and that through his line, the entire world will be blessed. But again, notice the problem. She's barren. She can't have children what we're about to see in her story is that this was such a massive problem in her mind and in her heart that it completely dwarfed God's promise to her. She'd become so consumed with this aspect of brokenness in her life that everything she saw was through the lens of her infertility. Which is exactly what we see in our next major interaction with her in Genesis 16, 1-4. Let me read it for you. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt 
on her mistress. So Sarai receives God's promise and immediately she feels stuck. She's at a loss for how God is going to work this out because her barrenness is such a massive obstacle. So she starts thinking, okay, how can I do my part in this? God, how can I help you out? How can I, you know, give you a hand in in making this thing happen? So she decides to let her husband go to bed uh, with her servant Hagar and bear a child with her instead. Now, now so we're clear, uh, this was an acceptable practice in those days in in order to ensure offspring for a family in a situation like this. Uh, I I know it seems uncomfortable to us and a bit shady. It was a bit shady, but culturally above board for whatever it's worth. Big surprise, Abram, he's like, well, okay. I mean, Sarah, if 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 you tell me that's what I have to do, I'm going to take one for the team. I'm going to get that done. (laughs) So Abram, like a good husband, he sleeps with Hagar and he gets her pregnant. That's Abram. He's a good man. The whole thing though, the whole thing though turns sour for Sarai once Hagar gets pregnant and starts flaunting her pregnancy. She starts kind of rubbing it in her face, looking down on her mistress Naturally, Sarai blames Abram for everything because after all, it's all his fault. What I want us to see here though is that Sarai's doubt that God is able to do what he promised leads her to take matters into her own hands and try to help him out. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think about us. Now, as we've seen, just like Sarai, all Christians are simply recipients of a promise. That's who we are. We're just like her. It's a promise that by grace alone, through faith alone, we will become worthy to reign with God for eternity. That means you have to be holy. That's the promise. It's a promise that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will sanctify us, as Jen talked about in her video. It's a promise that he who begun a good work in us will bring it to completion, that Jesus will be both the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's the promise. But sometimes it's a hard promise for us to believe, especially when we consider how broken we still are. Listen, the closer we get to God, the more intimate your relationship with him becomes, the tighter you walk with your Savior and your Lord, the more, the more we see the distance that remains between who he is and who we still are. In fact, this distance can at times feel so great that we begin to doubt that God will actually be able to accomplish what he has promised at all. For Sarai, infertility had become greater in her mind than what God could overcome. And I know that for many of us, the grip of sin on our lives can have the same exact effect. Many of us have walked in here today crippled by our own sin, attempting to pay penance for our own sin, attempting to beat ourselves up enough. Some of us have come here today to try to get clean, As if coming and listening to a preacher preach and singing some songs is is going to be powerful enough to clean you or to wash you. It's not. Many of us are so bruised and battered by the reality of sin in our lives that we find ourselves in the exact same situation of Sarah. So what do we do? Well, I think one of our most common tendencies in this is to try and give God a hand, just like Sarai did. We, we want to help him out with the whole promise of righteousness thing. We want to shore up his promise with our own good works. When we see how far we still fall short, we so instinctively want to revert to the law for our justification instead of relying on the grace of God. We look to our own piety for evidence that, that God's happy with us. We look to the things we do or the things we think of for evidence of where, of where God must still be pleased with us because still, we still see his fruit in our lives instead of looking just to the cross and recognizing everything we've ever put before him is as filthy rags. Never for one moment in my life have I given God the adoration or the respect or the worship that he deserves. I've never done it. Not for a moment. Everything I do is, is tainted by the reality of the corrupt nature that still clings to me that's why we need the cross. Now let's be clear, this is a big problem. Not only does it paralyze us when we can't get control of our own sin, which we can't. In our own power, we just cannot get control of our sin. But it's also a misguided perversion that ultimately undermines and belittles 
the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We make less of him when we attempt to pay penance for our sin or shore up his promise to us with our own righteousness. We make less of the work that he died to do. Which is why the next interaction we have in Sarai's story is so interesting. In Genesis 17, 15, we see God's first response to Sarai after she doubted his power and attempted to figure it out for him. Let me read that for us. Genesis 17, 15 to 16. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So God responds to Sarai's doubt by changing her name. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the names are really close, and actually the names both mean the same thing. Essentially, they both mean princess. But because of what uh, comes next, many commentators believe that the slight difference in the name uh, denotes a quantitative difference. See, while Sarai may have meant princess, singular, kind of over one, Sarah may mean princess over many. Regardless, what we see in these few verses is that God responds to Sarai's doubt in him by reaffirming his promise to her. He says, Sarah will bear a son and nations and kings will come from her. Now this is amazing. This is amazing because while we may have expected God to rebuke Sarah, what we see is entirely different. Our first point, God enters her doubt. God comes to Sarah in the middle of her doubt and he walks right into it and with transcending grace, he reaffirms her identity in him. He says, you are the recipient of my promise and nothing and no one will ever change that. He enters her doubt and he reaffirms his promise to her. Notice his heart toward his daughter. She thinks too little of him. Her faith is tiny. Her infertility is bigger to her than the power of God. But none of this takes him by surprise. He knows exactly where she's coming from. And he doesn't respond with anger, but with love. This morning, I want each of us to see that Jesus, in Jesus, God's heart is the exact same toward all of us, despite our weakness despite our lack of faith, despite our doubt, despite our sin. His heart is the exact same toward us. God is not surprised by our weakness. He knows we're dust. He created us. We don't have a God who stands back from us and condemns us for our failings. No, we have a God who entered human history. He became one of us. He entered human sin. He, he lived in the middle of us, came so close that we could reach out and touch him. He lived and died and rose in our place. We have a God who has taken the entirety of human suffering on himself. God has entered our brokenness. God enters our doubt when we sin against him. He doesn't come looking for payment. Because payment's already been made once and for all on the cross. There is no more payment to make. It's why in Jude 22, we're commanded to have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Well, because God, because God's mercies to us are new every morning. When you got out of bed this morning, his mercies were brand new. You can't exhaust them. You can't come to the end of them. Now before we run too far ahead in this, we need to remember that the kind of doubt we're talking about today is the kind that threatens to make us unstable in all of our ways. It's like we saw in James. Despite God's grace in our lives, despite the fact that he enters our doubt and reaffirms his promise to us in the middle of it, we don't want to hang on to our sin. Why not? Well, let's jump to the next major event in Sarah's story to see the answer to that question. 
where we'll see the second way that God relates to her in her doubt. Now in Genesis 18, we have an amazing story of God coming to meet with Abram. Abraham at this point, excuse me. Now this is an example of what theologians would call a theophany. This is God appearing in human form. There's mystery that surrounds this event, but what is clear through the scripture that follows is that Abraham is encountering God himself. Let me read you Genesis 18, the first eight verses. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant." So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour needed and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, so Abraham is serving the men who've come to him. He's literally taken the form of a servant. And even though He's aware that he's completely out of his depth here with these visitors that have come to him. We're not totally sure at this point if he recognizes them as God or not. But then God asks Abraham a very important question that I want us to notice. Genesis 18 verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. I love this. I love this. In that day women wouldn't normally be involved in moments like this. These were no ordinary guests and, and the women would have known to keep their distance. And because of that, I love how God seeks Sarah out. See, this isn't just about Abraham. What's God thinking about as he sits there eating? He's thinking about Sarah. He's thinking about the woman whose name he's just changed. The woman who doubts him, who doubts his power. The woman who thinks she knows better than he does. He's thinking about her because he has another message for her. And that message begins a really famous uh, indirect dialogue between the two of them, between God and Sarah. Let me read it for you in Genesis 18, 10 to 15. The Lord said, I will surely return to you, Abraham, about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. I'm not going to exegete that line for us this morning. Uh, I hope that you just know what that means. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Okay. So as far as, so as Sarah stands in the tent listening to the men, she hears them again reaffirm God's promise to them. They say that she, not Hagar, she will have a son. Now at this point in the stories, Sarah considers that prospect completely out of the question. I mean, she is so old now that her body isn't even going through the regular rhythms of womanhood anymore. She's let her doubt linger so long that she's finally immune to it. And so we finally hear her outright rejection of God's power as she laughs at him. Now God, being God, knows she just laughed at him and he asks why. And I want you to notice this moment. I want you to imagine this moment. Try to picture this moment, Almighty God, in the form of man, is declaring 
what he is about to do. And in the background, standing behind the flap of her tent, this barren woman that he's chosen laughs at him. So God stops talking and he turns his attention to her. I could just picture Sarah's face just going white. Her doubt has finally crippled her. Sarah's doubt in God's strength has now led her to a place of fear and a place of shame. So what does she do? Well, she hides. She's confronted by God and she denies everything. Sarah has finally become a victim of her own small view of God. Westside, this is exactly, exactly where our sin, where our doubt will lead us if left unchecked. If we continue to profess belief in God but deny the power of his grace in our lives or continue to profess belief in God but deny his life by the way that we live, this is where we will wind up filled with fear, shame, and afraid to be exposed. Listen, this is the only place to go for those people who want to justify themselves outside of Jesus. If you're looking to your own strength or your own good works or your own gifts or your own morality or your own wisdom or your own whatever for righteousness, then God's word tells us, promises us, you will wind up poor, blind, naked, and exposed. Yet even though that's where Sarah found herself in that moment, the second way we see God respond to her lack of faith is amazing. Look at the next interaction between God and Sarah. Genesis 21, uh, 1 to 7. It says, Then the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah's doubt causes her to laugh in the face of God. And God responds to his daughter by graciously giving her all that he had promised. He holds nothing back from her. God fulfills his promise to Sarah in spite of Sarah. He shows himself faithful despite her faithlessness. The second, way we, the second way God relates to Sarah in her doubt is by working through her in spite of it. And this is really, I mean, it's really, really good news for you and me. Our sin and our doubt doesn't make the work that Jesus did any less real or in its benefits any less effective. If you've put your trust in him, that is a promise to you. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus. God will fulfill his promise to you if you are in Jesus because his promise is based in who he is, not who you are. That's why we have no reason as Christians to doubt, fear, feel shame, or hide. Our lives are hidden with Christ in glory and nothing and nobody can change that. But it doesn't even end there. See, God's faithfulness to us in spite of us is meant to evoke a reaction from us. It's meant to do something to us. God's grace is meant to stir our faith. It's meant to crush our doubt. The everlasting faithfulness and steadfast love of God to those in Jesus is meant to destroy the root of our sin. This is the entirety of the Christian life. That's all that it is. 
every day that you live as a Christian from now until the day when you meet your Lord and Savior face to face will be this, learning to lean on God and trust him in spite, in spite of what we see in ourselves. And so many Christians, and I I get to come in contact with, with quite a few of them, but so many Christians live like they're waiting for God to punish them for all the wrong they've done. And they're just waiting for for the other shoe to drop. Hear me again. Jesus has already been punished in your place for all your sin, past, present, and future. Instead, instead of punishing us, our Heavenly Father lovingly corrects us. He mercifully disciplines us and graciously conforms us to the image of his beloved son. There is no debt left to pay. It's his unending grace that teaches us to trust him and rest in him. It's his kindness toward us that's meant to deepen our reliance on him. He wants wants you to trust him today. And his grace in your life, his grace that never fails you, his faithfulness that never runs out, his mercy, which is new every morning, is meant to just over and over and over again remind you that you can do that. You can trust him today. Which leads to the third and final way we see that God relates to Sarah in her doubts. See, one thing about Sarah's story is for sure. I mean, in a couple chapters later, her story ends, she dies. We don't hear much else about Sarah after that. But one thing about her story is for sure. There is a massive chasm between the life that Sarah led and the legacy that Sarah left. Let me show you. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul instructs the church to live as sons and daughters of Sarah, the woman of promise. In 1 Peter, the Apostle holds Sarah up as an example of obedience and godly submission and tells the church that we are her children if we do good and do not fear anything. Finally, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see Sarah herself positioned among those through whom God has shaped and recorded redemptive history. Sarah is in the hall of faith. Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith... Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Did you catch that? By faith, Sarah received. Faithfulness is attributed to a faithless woman. Why? Because God entered her doubt. God worked in spite of her doubt and God for all eternity has erased her doubt. This is the power of God's grace. This is the hope and the expectation of every Christian, every son and daughter of God that God will take every moment of our lives, the beauty and the mess and everything in between and he will turn it into something that will reflect his glory for all eternity. That's our hope. So let me wrap up with a couple questions to you. Where in your life are you doubting God? What in your life has become so big to you that it's actually bigger than his promise to you? Is there an area in your life where you are actually allowing doubt to linger so long that you find yourself laughing in the face of his promises, laughing at his word, laughing at his face? Are you functionally living as if you believe his promises to you, as you believe the promise of his word, or are you denying him with your life? Are you allowing doubt to shape your life? Here's a promise. If you're in Jesus, God will show himself faithful to you. He will show himself faithful 
faithful to you despite all the questions I just asked. If you're in Jesus, God doesn't come to you this morning with any kind of condemnation. No, he wants to enter your doubt. He wants to remind you who you are in him. And ultimately, he wants to take your doubt and erase it forever. But you've got to respond to him. Christian, you've got to respond to that. And that kind of grace that changes us. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, I just want you to remember that apart from Jesus, you have nothing. You have no righteousness and everything you need is in him. It's found in him. So chase him. Run after him. Give him everything. Let him take your doubt from you. And for those here who aren't Christians, you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, today, this moment, you too can become a recipient of God's promise. It's really simple how you do that. Instead of looking to yourself and trusting yourself, you look to Jesus and you trust in Jesus instead. As your Savior, as your Lord, as your King, as your hope. That's what it means to be a Christian. You become a recipient of the promise. And if that's you, I do want to just make, make really available to you today, make available to you today myself and any others. If that's you, just come down and talk to somebody before you leave here today. We want to have that conversation. But we need this. Everything we want, everything we desire most deeply in life is found in Jesus. And we need to pray. We need to ask him for strength to live in light of that. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope, God, that is found only here. Thank you for your promise to us that you will be faithful despite our faithlessness. God, we need that. We depend on that in every single way. Lord, in this morning, I just pray that you will, you will encourage and strengthen and build up your sons and daughters in your grace and in your love and in your mercy that you will strengthen us. And Father, for those here who don't yet know you, that today you would, you would allow them to see you. You would draw them to yourself. You would make them recipients of the same promise. Father, we love you. Your, your glory is beyond what we can comprehend and we just want to see you a little more. And I pray today, God, that you will show yourself to us. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray, amen.